This is relatively prime. Apples in stereo in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. I've recently been looking back at episodes from the first season of Relatively Prime. It's It's been a while since I've really checked them out again. And in particular, I was listening to the episode The Score, which is all about mathematics and music. And there's one story in there, which is a story about some non-Pythagorean musical scales developed by Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo. And I was just remembering that I am, I am really, really sure that Robert talked about a lot more than I played on this episode. And, and so I went back and I started listening to my original interview with Robert Schneider. And I was, I was blown away. Now, Robert is legitimately one of my favorite people to talk to. Been lucky enough to interview Robert two different times now, and both times have been mind-warping in the best possible way. And so I was thinking, wow, this interview, this original interview is so interesting, so wonderful, and really displays why Robert is such an interesting person, the leaps between thoughts and the connections that Robert manages to draw are so unique that I realized I have to share this whole thing. I have to make sure that everyone actually hears all of these super cool thoughts that Robert had about mathematics and music, because really, it's just so interesting. No matter how I cut together a story, I can't really compete with Robert's own words. So, all of that aside, and all of that runway up to why I'm just playing you this old interview, really just give it a listen and keep your mind open and look for those connections and hear these cool thoughts. And you know what? Just enjoy it. And we're going to start off with Robert's introduction. Uh, my name is Robert Schneider. I'm the lead singer of the Apples in Stereo. I'm also a founding member of the Elephant Six Recording Company Collective, and let's see, uh, I'm a record producer, and uh, I'm a graduate student in mathematics at Emory University. Uh, that that is a uh, you know that's a lot of things. You know, most most of the people I talk to just you know have like, oh, I'm a professor at so and so. It's it's nice to talk to someone who's. Uh, it has done something outside of that world. Oh, well, uh, yeah, I like exploring other worlds, I guess. Yeah, even though you managed to get sucked into academia anyway. It's a, it's a very, uh, you know, I, I, even, though it, even though it is uh, in, within the university kind of context, it, doesn't, it feels like a very creative setting. Like the word academic uh, carries with it a sort of like sterile kind of baggage or something like that. That uh, that doesn't quite describe it. It's like you know, I don't know. Being in the office at the graduate school feels more like I would imagine being in like a painting, you know, studio with a bunch of painters or something. It's kind of a wild uh, environment. So we're we're gonna talk about a, a lot of different things, but one thing that I would like you to please define for the uh, good of myself as well as the listeners before we get into any of the like cooler stuff. What is a Pythagorean scale and a chromatic scale? Uh, just so we can get that out of the way. Oh, okay. Um, I, I like the way the direction that this interview is going. So Pythagoras was an ancient Greek, uh, like philosopher and mathematician. He was really cool. Um, he had this. He started this sort of like vegetarian cult, and uh, in addition to that, he. Um, he did a lot of cool stuff, actually. Well, so there's the uh, Pythagorean theorem, of course. Um, his school also discovered that the square root of two is irrational, and they like threw one of their devotees. Uh, the the legend is that they threw him in um, him or her over. A, it was a him actually, over uh, into the sea because he it was supposed to be like secret knowledge, and he uh, divulged it to the public. <laughs> and so, um, not Pythagoras himself, just one of the uh, followers. 
Um, actually, that's a bad way to start because his cult was really cool um, as far as cults go, you know, just because they threw some guy into the sea. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> um, so anyway, he, um, he and his followers, basically, they believe that there are numbers sort of as the backdrop of kind of the physical world and I guess the mental world too. And so um, my perspective is that he, you know, kind of like, I mean, that is a, a very modern point of view. I mean, it was, it was an ancient point of view, too, but like, because this was like 2,500 years ago or something in Greece. I mean, it, it's sort of like the, it's the first idea towards, like, physics. So anyway, um, also he discovered sort of, you know, sort of like the laws of sort of music theory and um, sort of behavior of, like, resonant instruments, strings, uh, things that would strike, um, flutes and tubes of air and stuff like that. If you, okay, so, okay, um, so if you take like a vibrating string, like a guitar string, right? And if you touch the string in the, or, or press it in the, uh, I think actually we want to touch it, in the middle of the string, that's at the 12th fret on the guitar, but it divides the string into two parts. And uh, you hear a, a harmonic that's like an octave higher. And then um, as you touch other points along the string, uh, dividing it up into certain lengths, that is like say you touch the string one third of the way, from the end of the string to, you know, up, up its length um, in either direction, um, or like, say, two-thirds of the way or whatever. Or no, two-thirds of the way is, is the same as one-third. But if you did it like a uh, fifth of the way or a quarter and so on, you divide the vibrating string up into a bunch of, like, little mini waveforms. You can actually see it if you do it on the guitar and you hit the harmonics, like most guitar players tune that way. You can, like, look at the string and you can see that it actually is divided up into a bunch of little, like, vibrating areas that are sort of divided by nodes, like these, uh, that, ha that aren't vibrating. So it's super cool. Anyway, um, Pythagoras experimented with this sort of stuff and, like, um, discovered basically the, um, I'd say the bulk of all interesting observations about vibrating strings and also the relation of notes to the harmonics, the harmonics of the sounds that you hear as, as you touch the string at different places and divide it up into different uh, intervals. Now the thing is, so imagine taking a string and pressing it somewhere, and then you divide it up into a bunch of little intervals, like I just said. One thing is that the intervals are all, whole, they're all the same length. It's not like the string's divided up into a bunch of crazy little vibrating segments. Some of them are longer and some of them are shorter, with little standing points in between them that aren't moving. Like, it's divided up equally. And so um, it turns out that the notes that we hear in the musical scale, the harmonics that is, the harmonics that we hear when we uh, play physical instruments are um, related to whole numbers, that is, or, or fractions, you know, rational numbers, fractions involving whole numbers, because you divide up the string, or let's say it's a column of air, these things get divided up into the same um, into in integer number of parts as the waveforms are kind of like, you know, bouncing around or, or whatever in the medium. So anyway, uh, I mean, I don't know. If, so I, I suppose there's obvious to the listener that like that same thing is related to number theory. That is, number theory is sort of very broadly the theory of sort of patterns that ripple through the whole numbers. And it's much more than that, but that's a, you know, that that's, a fairly, um, it's kind of like the, 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 well, I mean, there's so much more to it actually. So maybe I want to take back what I just said. But anyway, um, so Pythagoras was a first number theorist. He was also like the first music theorist. Uh, you know, in a sense, he was a physicist and like, um, uh, he was a vegetarian. And I like that because I'm a vegetarian. And um, I'm sure he had his flaws. All of those things are really, really cool. So anyway, um, so a Pythagorean scale is a musical scale that is formed if you play the sequence of harmonics, not necessarily in order, but like if you, if you were to touch a guitar string um, at all of the points that you can form harmonics, you can get, basically that gives you an approximation to the 12 tones in the, the scale that we normally hear. Okay, so the Pythagorean scale is the scale that you get from all of those harmonics, not including their octaves, that you can get from touching a string and dividing it up into, you know, integer numbers of little mini waves. So the musical scale that you get if you basically tune to the resonant properties of physical instruments, of the harmonics, is the Pythagorean scale. 
like you could take a string and get all the harmonics, touch all the points where you would produce harmonic frequencies, and tune another string, a set of strings to each of those tones, and you'd find that there were 12 different tones, and those 12 tones are basically the scale that we hear. Um, when we play a piano, let's say, for up from, like, say, a given note up to the next octave above it by hitting all of the white and the black keys in order. That's a chromatic scale. Chromatic means sort of that the things change and morph from one to another at sort of, like, equal, like, intervals or something. So, like, they're all happening sort of at the same speed as you flow from one point to the next or one note to the next. Or if you think about chromatic colors, the, the chromatic colors is kind of like where you would, like, scan through the rainbow from the top to the bottom or something. And so, um, so a chromatic scale is just a scale where all of the notes and, or the tones in the scale are, like, equally spaced apart. That's a chromatic scale. Chromatic means, like, equally spaced, sort of. And so the Pythagorean scale is not a chromatic scale, but it's very close to a 12-tone chromatic scale. But if you take the octave and you divide it up the right way, you get a scale where all of the notes are equally spaced. And that's the scale that we play in the modern world, at least on, like, pianos, synthesizers, and that kind of stuff. Most instruments that you tune or would tune electronically, well, actually, I'm not sure about that. I don't know how those, like, you know, robotic tuners work. But like uh, any instrument that you, most keyboard instruments and most music in general is tuned to a chromatic scale. And so um, that was like innovated, I think. It was, in, like, it was evolving around the time of Bach. So like he did that series of compositions called like the, uh, the well-tempered, you know, the well-tempered clavier. And that is, well, temperament was, to my understanding, a type of tuning system where people were trying to find the right way to tune so that you would get equally spaced notes. Because the Pythagorean scale, it turns out, the tones as you go up it aren't the same distance apart. Like some of them are a little closer together, some of them are a little farther apart. Now, like when you're talking about just like humming a scale, da 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 or something like that, except for don't hum it horribly like that. But like if you think about humming a scale, then you're passing through, um, well, okay. So the notes of that scale, basically the way I just sang it, are kind of like random, you know, they're, they're just sort of like, we're near the actual note. The real note is sort of hanging there, sort of in your mind where you want to hear it, and you sing a note or you play a note that kind of comes close to it. I mean, I'm not sure if it's really hanging there in your mind. I'm just saying it's like, it's as if it exists on its own, separately from the sound, and the sound kind of gets close to it. But you can imagine having like a musical scale or having musical compositions like on sheet music or something, where the music is there, the ideas are there, and what tones are supposed to be there are there, but there's no sound. And so... um the Pythagorean scale doesn't hit all of those equally spaced chromatic notes exactly. Some of the notes are a little lower, some are a little higher. Like when you hear it, when you're like singing it or something, you can't tell the difference. In fact, I'm pretty sure like guitars and string instruments might be tuned the way you tune them. Just when you tune one to itself, I think you tune it to a Pythagorean scale, I think, because you're, you're dealing with the properties of the vibrating string to produce your tuning with harmonics and stuff. Anyway, um, man, I got a little bit off field there, I think. Um, did that answer the question? <laughs> I uh yes. Uh I can definitely say that there that the question has been very answered. Can you take that and like chop it up into something that like fits onto your um radio show or your yeah, your podcast? Yeah. yeah, don't don't worry. I've uh, I editing is not something that I am against. Okay, good. Just take the juicy stuff in, please. <laughs> Cuz uh, a very interesting topic to me. <laughs> oh yes, I I I know. Sorry, Samuel from 2019 instead of 2012 here. Uh, I just want to step in and apologize to Robert for having decided to seven years later put this out without a lot of editing. But I mean, come on, this is really interesting, right? But enough enough of me talking about how much I like it. Let's just get back to the interview. What made you decide to to look at these, you know, traditional scales, the the ones that that seem to work very well for making music? Uh, what made you decide to look at those and think, eh, I don't like it, and and, oh, and just uh, come yeah. up with your own? So you mean the um, the logarithmic 
although non-Pythagorean, the quote-unquote non-Pythagorean scale that I've been experimenting with. Yes. Okay, so I guess I'm not in any way dissatisfied with the Pythagorean scale or the uh, chromatic scale. I love them. I love pop songs. I love like classical music. I love melodies and harmonies. I want them to sound beautiful and good and evenly spaced. So like, uh, like uh, it, it was due to no dissatisfaction. Um, I think that the topic of just like specific tunings is of intense interest to some people who are kind of uh, into classical music and or just into experimental music. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a branch of people that are interested in the tunings. So uh, one of my best friends, Jim McIntyre, who started the Elephant Six Collective, or co-started it with me and a lot of uh, and a group of friends. He plays in a band called Bon Hemling, actually, and so that's a really amazing sort of experimental band on Elephant Six. He was very interested in temperament, and temperament is exactly how you get close to the tones of your instrument being like a chromatic scale. I mean, the problem is, in theory, sure, you could take an electronic tuner that's tuned to a chromatic scale, and you can always tune to it. So there's no problem with tuning to a chromatic scale, right? The problem is, how do you come up with the formula that describes those tones in the first place so that the electronic machine can generate them? The problem with tuning isn't like, oh, can we tune our instruments? It's more like, what is the formula we follow so we know we're getting that perfect scale where everything's um, equally spaced, a chromatic scale? It's called equal temperament. And so how do we know we have that wonderful scale? Well, we have to have a, a mathematical equation to describe it. It's an equation that describes basically the size of the waveforms or however you care to look at it, or the size of the wavelength of the waveforms, I mean. So anyway, yeah. my friend Tim McIntyre uh, was very interested in temperament and in tuning and um, in listening to like modern classical music. He had come to hate hearing the, the fudge factor. Like when you, when you tune to, to equal temperament, I mean, this is to sort of like, you know, what I was talking about, the scale of Pythagoras. Um, when you tune instruments to this equally spaced tuning, um, where the notes are all equally spaced, um, it kind of, the tuning fights a little bit against the resonant properties of the instrument. Because the instrument, like if you're playing a given note on the instrument, the instrument doesn't care exactly what your formula was that you used to tune it. All that it cares about is resonating in its whole numbered, you know, rational numbered, uh, you know, wavelengths and stuff. And like, it just wants to sit there and resonate nicely in a Pythagorean tuning. The instrument does. But here you've tuned its notes slightly off from that tuning. And so all those harmonics that are on the vibrating string will be sort of like fighting against the notes that you're playing, especially if you play chords. So you play chords in an equal temperament. Um, and, or, uh, you know, your, your instrument, just a little bit, is like struggling or fighting against those chords. It wants to resonate one way. You've told the instrument to produce tones that are slightly off from that. And so, um, so, you know, composers and people that like to listen to temperament will feel very strongly that the natural resonance of the instrument is such a beautiful, like almost like mystical kind of sound. It's so beautiful. And that to interrupt that with all of these other little beat frequencies and things that happen, sort of the fudge factor that's there, there's sort of an approximation and there's sort of an error term to the sound that you want to get. And you hear it. I hear it. You hear sort of like, it depends on the chord you're playing or the intervals you're playing or, you know, but you hear these little like faint little oscillations. And this would bother my friend Jim. Um, he wanted to hear stuff only in just intonation, kind of like the natural tuning to the natural harmonics of the instrument. Um, he was talking about this one day. I was at his apartment. And uh, he's, for, I, should note, I should note that he's an incredible genius. And so, like, he's really feeling this stuff about just intonation and equal temperament. It's not just, like, sitting here, like, talking about it like I'm talking to you. He was very passionately. It's as if your stereo had one blown speaker and the other speaker had, like, a crackle. And you'd be, like, just crazy about it. <laughs> and, so, and, and, and so, like, he was, um, uh, he was, you know, very passionate about this topic. And so um, as he was telling that, it occurred to me that there are these beat frequencies that are sort of wandering around inside the music, and that maybe you could tune your notes, your temperament, or your, your, however you tune your notes, you could tune them in a way that those frequencies would, it would seem natural. Uh, and so as soon as I thought of it, at the time, I, I, like, I study analytic number theory, and in that, logarithms play a big role, like in the prime number theorem and stuff. At the time, I was studying the prime number theorem and, like, Riemann's work on the prime number, on, you know, towards the prime number theorem. 
And so it all involves like waveforms and logarithms and this kind of stuff. And so like the first thing that popped into my mind was what about tuning waveforms to logarithms? And so like um, uh, as I left my friend's house, I walked out to the car, and by the time I got into the car, it, it's a very simple equation. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very simple formula to generate tones at that scale. Um, I got in my car, I wrote down the formula, and um, sort of wondered if that would be musical, if it would be some totally just random, crazy series of tones that would sound mechanical or something, like maybe a machine would produce them. I just, I didn't know. Um, it just was interesting to me because um, the point is that if you play two tones together, I mean, to you generate, say, two pitches, like a, two sine waves, let's say, and you play them together, there's a third tone that is generated. Well, it, it, to, it, to call it a tone is like a matter of taste or opinion a little bit. But the, um, there's a third frequency that's generated that's called the beat frequency. And the beat frequency between two tones is the value of each frequency. So let's say one frequency is 500 hertz, the other frequency is 400 hertz. So you take the difference between those two frequencies, which is 100 hertz in this case, and that is called the beat frequency. And it's sort of like a, well, it's an amplitude wave, actually, but it's sort of like a little wobbling that you hear in the sound. Um, an example is when you're tuning a piano or you're tuning a guitar and you're tuning it to one of the other strings. Until the note gets to the tone that's being played on the other string, so you're trying to tune them to the same tone, or the same pitch, I mean. So until they get to the same pitch, you'll hear the sort of kind of thing going on in between the notes. And uh, you're playing two strings, you're letting them ring together, and as the one string's tone or pitch approaches the pitch of the other string, it'll kind of, the, the wobbling, the beat frequency will slow down. So at first you have the two strings that are like way out of tune with each other, and you hear like this kind of like crazy out of tune sound. Um, as you move the one string that you're tuning towards the tone of the other string, it goes and then at the point that you have practically infinitely long beat frequency, uh, wavelengths, you know, oscillations, I mean, then um, that's when you consider the instrument to be in tune. And so, like, um, the oscillations are called beat frequencies. And if you take a, uh, if you take pitches, like I said, you play them together, then the difference between the, um, each of those pitches is the beat frequency. And my thought was, if you tune the pitches to the sequence of logarithms of the whole numbers, like one pitch is, say, tuned to something like, you know, log 4, log 5, log 6, and so on. They're all like some tone, like middle C, some pitch, multiplied by that sequence of logarithms. Then the difference between two logarithms, like let's say log 6 and log 3, so your pitches are proportional to log 6 and log 3, the difference between those, log 6 minus log 3, is also the log, it's the logarithm, of the ratio of the two pitches. So, of course, log 6 um, minus log 3, that beat frequency is also proportional to log 6 over 3, which is log 2. And log 2 is also a note in our scale. So what seems interesting to me is that you have a sequence of pitches, a scale, and when you play chords in the scale, the beat frequencies that are generated between the pitches could also be members of the scale if you chose them right. It's not like a group where every combination of notes, like every chord you play, will produce frequencies in the scale. You have to choose them so that the pitches have a, you know, whole numbered ratio. And so, in that case, you can be playing chords or, you know, pitches together on the, in the scale, and the beat frequencies would also be members of the scale. And so, um, it seems kind of like theoretically nice and kind of beautiful. And in a totally non-natural resonating properties of instruments kind of way, it gives you this natural sort of musical scale where you have the um, beat frequencies that are related to the pitches you're playing. And so that's where I stood. It just was like, okay, that, that would be cool. And then for like a year, um, I uh, kind of like just wondered if it would sound musical, if the notes would even play them together, what would it sound like? Um, like I said, uh, would they sound mechanical? Would they sound like, you know, maybe environmental noises in nature, that kind of stuff? After about a year of wondering about it, I was talking to my brother-in-law, Craig Morris, who's a musician and has a studio, a studio that he mostly built by hand. I mean, like the, the, the compressors and stuff he built by hand. He, anyway, he, uh, we were talking about it. He was like, you know, I think if you just use a sine wave generator and generated those pictures, I could turn them into MIDI files for you to play on a keyboard. I was like, no way. That'd be great. 
so I uh, generated the sequence of pitches that would be the logarithmic scale um, on a keyboard. I mean, on a uh, sine generator. I sent them to him. He converted them into files that I could play with a MIDI keyboard, and um, I started to like play with it. And I can remember the first time I like actually like pressed the notes. It was so shocking because the sequence of the keys and the notes associated with them on a keyboard or on a piano is so familiar. It's practically like, you know, you grow up with this, 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 the sounds, these notes attached to that particular arrangement of keys. And so the first time that I played the scale, I played a, couple of, a few notes in sequence, and then I played a couple of chords. It's really weird, because most of these pitches are not approximating the Pythagorean scale. They're not anywhere near, like, the regular pitches. They're these logarithmic tones, and what, what they sound like is instead of being equally spaced apart, or even something close to that, they are the first few tones in the scale, the lowest notes, as you go up the keyboard, are kind of spaced kind of far apart. And as you go from one note to the note right next to it, going upwards on the keyboard, the notes get closer and closer together until, as you get very far up, they would be really close together. Uh, the number of like notes in each octave kind of increased exponentially, so I had limited it to the, to, to the octave that, of notes, the 12 tones actually, that are from the notes that are proportional to the natural log of 4 up to the log 16, because log 16 is twice log 4, and to get the octave of a pitch, you just it double the frequency. So the, the, an octave higher than 300 hertz is 600 hertz, and so on. And so um, log 16... Uh, well, log 16 is twice, uh, sorry, log 16 is twice log 4, and so, um, because it's log 4 squared, of course. And so, um, there were 12 tones, 4, 5, 6, up through 16. There were 12 tones in that octave from uh, a note tuned to log 4 to a note tuned up to log 16. Um, and so, by a nice coincidence, you have a 12-tone logarithmic scale that you can play on a keyboard, because the keyboard has 12 tones in the octave. And, uh, yeah, Craig, my brother-in-law, made these songs. And uh, it pretty much blew my mind. It was like, like you know, hearing your like m your mom turn towards you and like start to speak in like you know a deep man's voice or something like that, or like you know hearing a cat like sing like a bird or something like that. It was it was so such a strange sequence of tones to hear coming from a keyboard. It was really like fun and um, cool to mess around with and be like. It sort of made my brain hurt a little bit or something because it was so different from the scale that is ingrained in my, you know, surely ingrained in my, like, synapses. So, yeah, so I just started to experiment with it because it really made my mind feel good, playing this different sequence of pitches and also hearing these weird beat frequencies and stuff. When you play chords, they kind of sound like crickets chirping. If you play other chords, it sounds like there's, like, an element to it that sounds like mechanical sounds, like an elevator or something like that. Um machinery or bells ringing. The different chords have these different qualities that are particular to each chord. And so, um, so yeah, anyway, I've been experimenting with that. It's pretty cool. I called it non-Pythagorean just because it's not Pythagorean. And um, I thought it sounded catchier than logarithmic scale or logarithmic <laughs> musical scale. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that sounds kind of dry. Like we're talking about something amazing here. We're talking about like alien music. And, you know, you could come up with a million scales like this. That's, but at the same time, this particular scale has the property that the B frequencies can also be members of the scale. They can be notes in the scale. So, like, it's like it sounds really dry to just call it a logarithmic scale for the public who are the people that listen to music. It's not something, you know, you'd hope that it would be interesting to all people. At the same time, you're not just making music that's, like, to study. You know, you know it, it's supposed to be, like, pleasurable to listen to and to play. And so... Um, I thought non-Pythagorean sounded catchier than logarithmic, even though logarithmic is accurate and non-Pythagorean certainly isn't because, like, any scale that's not tuned to the <laughs> scale of Pythagoras is non-Pythagorean. It's not like, you know... <laughs> but anyway, um, so it's not it's not the non-Pythagorean scale. It's just a lot a non-Pythagorean scale, but it's, uh, it is the logarithmic musical scale. <laughs> yes, and it, it's your uh, non-Pythagorean scale. Yeah, that's right. I should have joined that to the name. <laughs> I, and so um, it's really cool. It's fun to play. It's it's interesting. I recommend people play in different scales and try it out because it makes your brain feel good. I and now, as as you mentioned, you are in a rock group. Yes. I, I realize I just sounded about four times older than I actually am when I said rock group. <laughs> Uh, no, you should have said a, you, should, you know, maybe like a uh, musical group or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that would make me sound even worse. 
Uh, you are in. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> you are in the band uh, The Apples of Stereo, which is a very good band that I happen to enjoy listening to. Uh, Thank you. Uh, but you've actually used this scale in the creation of rock music, this alien scale. So what what was it like to actually? So you've developed this scale, the scale that's interesting uh, mathematically and it's interesting musically for the reasons that you've said. But as you said, it's kind of alien. It's it's different than what you're used to. So how did you uh, get? How did you actually use it to create music that? I would then uh, be pleasurable to, you know, your average person who's going out to buy your uh, album instead of to someone like you who who is interested in it for both the mathematical and kind of the musical theoretics behind it. Taking away the theoretical side that somebody might think is cool in sort of like a, just in a sort of conceptual way, like the, um, I'm fairly sure that you'd have to have a fairly, you know, pretty expansive view of musicality anyway to, like, listen to stuff like this. I mean, we're talking about stuff that is fairly experimental. It's not, like, as experimental, say, as music concrete or, like, say, playing a composition, you know, by, you know, unlike, say, by striking the moon with a mallet or something like that, you know? Okay, it's I not, like, on that level being experimental. That. But it's not, it's, this isn't like, yeah, I would say that this is something where, you know, I think that at very least, it, you have to be open to hearing different things like this, and also you have to be able to um, let yourself adjust your ear to it. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but like you know, I personally like hearing stuff that sounds like alien stuff. As soon as I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's kind of futuristic. At the same time, like to really, really listen to it, you have to allow yourself to get into the space of that music. And so um, I would think that it would not be pleasant for people just listening to it, even though it's not unpleasant music. It's really quite. I think it's quite sort of melancholy and pretty. I've heard it. I happen to like it. I, but how did, how did you get to the point? Like, well, how about how about this? How uh, how did the other members of your band react when you? Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. You brought this to them. No, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I got off the track there from the question. Actually, you're right. Okay. So, um, the 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 the, the thing is that the Appleton Band are a pop band, and we try to make really catchy music that you know will kind of like feel good to listen to, to your ears. At the same time, we sort of are in the habit of putting lots of sound effects and strange sounds in our music, and also um, stringing the songs together on an album with, uh, with link tracks, you know, like with little, like, um, segue tracks that are anywhere from short and fun to totally non-musical. Um, and so um, it's sort of a, uh, in the tradition of, you know, great psychedelic records, um, like Smile oh, oh, or Sgt. Pepper. I, I was mm-hmm. just thinking of the skits that tied together rap music. Uh, yeah, very much like that. And also maybe like any smaller segment on a Monty Python or something like that. You have this, you have this big thing that you've been in for a little while, and then you want to put like a little palate cleanser, but without it just being empty space, because you want to keep the flow going and you want to like take the listener on a journey and you don't want that journey to stop in between songs. So like you'll put in these cool little places like little little it's like decorating your hallway between rooms or something. So on the the first time that we used it, I had been experimenting with the scale while we were recording our album New Magnetic Wonder. I think it was like 2006 or something like that. And so um, that album had link tracks between most of the songs. So I used uh, I, I, you know just it was natural that I was recording these compositions and they would go on our new album. The album had quite a lot of kind of experimental link tracks and different little pieces. And so um, it made sense to put things that sounded like alien music in between it. So that part wasn't, it wasn't like totally bizarre because we were putting little strange things in the gaps anyway between the songs to tie them together. At the same time, I think that my bandmates, I think they thought it was cool that I had come up with the scale. They didn't understand the math of it, at least at first. They all like experimental music, so they were cool with that part and liked it. I mean, there's lots of stuff like Zanakis or... 
you know, Lamont Young, uh, Vish McGradsky. There's lots of strange music where the scales are tuned to sort of different types of formulas or you have to perceive them in different ways. This is stuff that we all like. And so, um, you know, I think that it was, I think everybody was, I mean, I, I feel like they were impressed and they liked it. They It was also a fun idea to do this sort of mass scale um, that makes this, makes this alien music. I don't think it was like they were like, hey, man, you got to get out of here with your weird scale. <laughs> I think, but they, you know, I think that at the same time, it wasn't like something that maybe they would have thought of themselves, but they all do make experimental music and stuff. So, like, you know, it's definitely in the vein of the sort of thing that might go in between songs on our album. And so I put, the, I put two of the first batch of compositions I recorded. This is using a sine wave generator and then playing it with a keyboard. Like, um, a couple of the first compositions went on New Magnetic Wonder. In fact, the opening chord of the scale was the beautiful chord that I discovered in my first, let's say, few months of playing with the scale. You know, because here you have, no, you have no music theory. You, you know, you can't attach your music theory in the logarithmic scale to the layout of the keys, the way that they look, the way you can with the chromatic scale. Like, there's sort of this, you know, you're, you're talking about a whole different chord shapes, Different chords have different textures. Um, you know, some notes don't sound good together. Other notes sound great together. Um, some notes may sound good together and have the beat frequencies being a member of the scale. Other chords sound great, but the beat frequency is not a member of the scale. So, like, there's no real, like, theory in advance to, like, tie it together. So it's really exciting. I mean, it was exciting to play in something where I had no idea what it was sounding like or what it was going to be. Where would you play chords on the keyboard? Literally, which keys do you put fingers on to make chords? Because all the keys, some of the notes are close together, other ones are far apart. You know, it's like, it, it, it's kind of really, really exciting in that way. And I think it sounded exciting when I first started playing it for my friends. So anyway, I had discovered this one chord, and now I can't remember what it is. I'm sure it's really easy, though. But I had discovered this one chord that sounded especially beautiful. It had sort of this open, ringing quality to the beat frequencies. They're very slow, phasing through the beat frequencies, like sort of like the resonances of like ringing bells or like... Uh, um, maybe a Tibetan prayer bowl or something like that. And so um, I recorded just that chord, and we made it the opening chord of the album. My thought was, we have a new chord, let's start a new album with it. You know, like, really, like, people will be hearing something really different. And so um, as we were mixing the album, we had, um, at the studio where we were mixing, Bryce Goggin's studio in Brooklyn, Trout Studios, which is incredible. We did the last two albums, a large chunk of the recording there, and mixing. So we were, when we were mixing, we had the songs going through an oscilloscope. And so with the oscilloscope, you can kind of see the fuzzy, pulsating waveforms go by as the music goes by on the screen. Um, generally, it looks something like, you know, it's like really fast, random-looking sine waves passing by, or sort of like this fuzzy globule that looks kind of like a galaxy that's sitting sort of at an angle in what, in, in what is like the... Well, it, it basically... It, you can, you can set it different ways. And the way we had it set was that you're looking at this pulsating galaxy kind of configuration on the screen. As the music's playing, the thing's kind of pulsing in and out in a sort of staticky way. Um, and it shows you sort of, um, it basically tells you that your music's in phase, along with other stuff. It has to do with the stereo image. And so um, we had it set to this galaxy-looking configuration. And as the chord played, um, as you get just a single sine wave, the first tone on the album, there was just sort of this, like, nice, neat, you know, oscillation on the screen. Like you might imagine a single sine wave. As the second note and then the third note came in, suddenly the thing turned into like this 3D vector graphics looking knot that was spinning slowly on the oscillator, on the oscilloscope screen. It was like, and like it makes a knot on the oscilloscope. Like I said, the oscilloscope usually is this fuzzy looking galaxy of static. This little blob kind of like throbs on the screen. And here we have like a pulsating vector graphic looking knot like might have been generated by like a 70s computer artist or something like that, like rotating on the screen. Um, it was really cool. You know, we, we were all like looking at the oscilloscope screen like, whoa, that is crazy. <laughs> um, but that was the oscilloscope was, must have been registering the beat frequencies, which, you know, and the whole thing kind of simplified um, mathematically. And that was like being shown on the uh, screen of the scope. And um, it was really cool. And so... Um, so yeah, so then um, for the second album that we used it on, which was Travelers in Space and Time, that was like the Apple's, our most recent album, um, the album had a futuristic theme for one thing. So the whole album was intended as a time capsule for listeners in the future. And it had sort of a futuristic theme to the music, sort of a retro-futuristic kind of musical um, elements going on, beeping computers and UFO sounds and stuff. Uh, I thought that for, for the record, it would be fun to record a song, like a, a rock song, 
where we use the logarithmic scale. I, you know, I had mentioned that the logarithmic scale. Oh, I'm going on really at length. Can you? Edit, will you do you promise me you'll edit this? And you won't post the whole thing with me like rambling for like seven hours um, well, as well, like a, I, as like a series of embarrassing podcasts. 2019, Samuel here again, and I just want to say that I'm starting to feel really, really bad now, Robert. But, but. One episode does not constitute an entire series, so I get by in a technicality. Also, it turns out I actually justified it back in 2012 when I recorded this. Yeah. Okay, uh, so so what I will say, yes, this will be edited. As a matter of fact, I already have a very good idea of how I'm going to edit it, and it's going to sound really good. Uh, oh, thank but you. But, too, I will be posting the raw audio of every single interview I did, and you are not the person who has rambled the most. That's fine, then. Okay. Well, that's okay, then. Oh, okay, good, good. Um, well, then, uh, in that case, uh, to the probably single listener of that uh, you know, recording, um, I hope that they will accept my apologies. Um, oh, okay, okay. So, so I had mentioned that none of the tones in the scale, on the logarithmic scale, um, are very close to tones in the chromatic scale. It's not exactly true. Because, um, for one thing, the root note of the scale, just the, the first tone, the opening tone of the logarithmic scale, can be tuned to any pitch that you want. So I tuned it to middle C. So, of course, that coincides with middle C and all of the octaves of that tone. Too. Um, and you can tune it to any tone. It doesn't have to be a note on the piano, but, you know, I wanted it to kind of, I don't know, it just seemed like, I, actually, the thing is, I, I knew what the frequency for middle C was, the numerical frequency, so I based the whole scale on that just because I knew it off the top of my head. Um, all of the notes in a given octave of the scale, the 12-tone scale especially that we're talking about, where you have actual 12 logarithmic pitches to play on the keyboard, the reason that's cool is that from the log of 16 up to the next square, the log of 16 squared, that's an octave, that's a lot of pitches. And so um, going up another octave, basically the number of pitches in each octave of the scale increases almost exponentially, or it does increase exponentially, as, the scale, as you go up from octave to octave to octave. And so it made sense to to use only the octave that has 12 tones that you can already play on an existing keyboard instead of having to build keyboards that would have exponentially increasing numbers of tones in the in, in each octave. However, that would be really, really cool to play. I would really like to have a keyboard where the number of keys in each octave increase exponentially. So you go from one octave, you're playing 12 tones, you go to the next octave and it's got whatever, like 40 or... How many is that? Like 100... 14 or no uh okay yeah i'm bad at math apparently <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um uh so um the point is this you have a the middle c is one of the notes in the scale and also the fifth of the root note of the scale which is g in that case is also a member of the scale it's just that it falls on a different key so in the logarithmic scale if you play c on the c key g is normally like up five white keys but in the logarithmic scale, the G is on the, well, it would be the E key. It's three keys up. So, you know, in the first five tones of the scale, that spans the first two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight tones of the uh, 12-tone regular chromatic scale. Um, so you have the, the tones are significantly wider, you know, apart, so more widely spaced uh, apart. And so, um, let's see. Uh, so, oh, but anyway... The notes C and G are also included in the Pythagorean or the non-Pythagorean, the logarithmic scale, um, in the in the scale as it's tuned to C. And so um, I thought, well, we can have a song where the song just goes between G and C, which I can play on the guitar and we can play on a bass and that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, any good pop song or garage rock song could have the restriction that it only has two chords. That that, that could be an awesome song. Um, if you have a good melody and a cool lyric and that kind of stuff, your band's awesome, that kind of thing. So anyway, um, like I'm going to write just a two-chord song, and it's going to, um, then I can both play a regular song and sing a song that's in the regular scale that I like hearing and that's catchy to me, the chromatic scale, and then I can also have passages where um, we would go into the non-Pythagorean scale. Um, the thing is that I think it's, you know, I'm sure that somebody more talented and more skilled than I could do this, but, like, I can't imagine actually trying to sing melodies, you know, with my voice in this crazy scale. Uh, I mean, it's a beautiful scale. Don't get me wrong. When I say it's crazy, it's not like it just sounds like, you know, a comet going by or something. It's like a series of pitches. They just have a strange uh, sequence, the cadence and the – it's kind of got a weird 
outer spacey kind of melancholy vibe to the scale, the notes. If you listen to it, I'm sure you can download the, you know, the files or something online. Um, actually, we included them. We included the files on the CD for New Magnetic Wonder, so that the people can take it and put it in their computer and play, you know, load it into their their whatever they use to play computer music, and they could play it with the scale themselves. And some people have used it and made songs with it and stuff that are really cool and satisfying to hear. I like hearing futuristic logarithm music. So anyway, uh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I got so far off track. Um, um, or really, I'm on track, but it just took me a long time to get there. <laughs> um, so I wrote a I wrote a catchy garage rock song called CPU that had just two chords and uh, recorded it. I did the basic tracks in my brother-in-law Craig Morris's uh, home studio, and he played drums on it, and uh, he might have played bass too. I can't remember. And um, it's this raw garage rock song, but it doesn't have any chords. All of the instruments are just playing notes. If you play chords. Then you're running. Then you're introducing notes that won't be in the logarithmic scale at all, and so um, we uh, it just kind of rides between G and C. And there are sections of the song where you have the logarithmic scale playing. It has kind of a spacey garage rocky kind of sound and strings, chords, and stuff. And then um, when the singing is happening, it's in the regular scale. So it goes between kind of catchy, weird, catchy, weird, <laughs> and so on throughout the song. It's a pretty fuzzy, sloppy, garage rocky song, and that takes away from the electronic-y, sort of experimental, futuristic element of the logarithmic scale. Whereas the other compositions that were on New Magnetic Wonder and other things I've composed really sound like they're floating in space. I mean, you're using a sine wave generator, you know, it's very pure tones, and then it's this weird scale and these weird harmonics and, you know, resonances and stuff like that. So this song was just like fun and noisy and a ball of fuzz and like a song about, um, you know, missing your computer when you're away from it. And so um, it has like robot voices singing back at the singer and, you know, it's fun and garage rocky. Um, but it has this like sort of like strange sounding melodic passages on the, on the keyboard coming in and out. Um, it was really fun to make that. And that went on the last album anyway. That's um, And so, uh, yeah, I don't think it was a big deal. I mean, it's like cool to... It's cool to experiment with different sounds and write fun songs in different ways. And, and, and you know, most importantly, it's, there's some theoretical interest to me in the thing about the beat frequencies. But the most important thing is that you just have different tools to make music and to make sound with. And it's fun to play with those sorts of things. You know, you're like painting a painting. You look down, there's some leaves on the ground, you stick them on the painting. You know, like that's what this is. Um, there's cool stuff lying around in the universe and you use it in your art project. And that, you know, and for me, that was music. That's music, of course. But, like, um, that's, um, I think that that's all I've got. Did that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> I asked I ask rather, uh, you know, humorously. It, it, it definitely did. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think uh, there's a ton more that I would love to talk to you about. But um, I, could, I could make brief answers if there's stuff you just want to know. Uh, it, honestly, for the, it's, the this uh has can i can i make another comment just about the math music kind of thing oh sure yes um like to me uh, th there are a few interesting things it, like like i just want to play beautiful music and i like want to write songs that like feel meaningful and like you know kind of like express meaning in life or give meaning to life or whatever you know i, I want to write beautiful music i love the chromatic scale um i love pythagoras in general and um, and I love like playing music and playing pretty music. So like I'm very satisfied writing pretty songs and catchy songs. Um, and so um, at the same time, like there's some you know there, there's definitely like a mathematical interest in the scale for me in the fact that and experimenting with mathematics and music. It, it's not just the logarithmic scale. The fact is mathematics is a source of wonderful, very natural seeming, beautiful and simple patterns, and it's also a source of really crazy, far out, bizarre, like edge of the universe kind of stuff that are still patterns. These patterns are there. And like the idea of being able to take patterns, no matter how simple, like logarithms is just a little more complicated than whole numbered ratios like the Pythagorean scale. It's really not that much of a step up. But you have all sorts of crazy stuff that you could use. And you don't have to like use it to make math. The, the fact is like, one perspective on music is that it is a form of math. It is just oscillations 
um, r- rhythms, um, you know, uh, frequencies and these frequencies and timbres and harmonics and all of this stuff mashed together where you choose them just right so that they really make you feel good. And, and like, so just like any mathematics, you have all of the possible math that's out there and you pick out the patterns that strike you as being most beautiful and also the, like, worth, the, the thing that, like, turns you on to want to explore it. And to me, like, mathematics gives another, like, pool of patterns to draw from, not just for making mathematics, which I see separate from music, but to make, you know, to, to make any kind of art. Like I said, you could use leaves, glass, the paintbrush itself, and stick them all to the painting um, if, you, if that's what you want to use to express yourself in a painting. With music, too, it's wonderful to explore the beautiful things. And I feel like there's just like, they're so juicy, notes and chords. They're so juicy and amazing and like fruitful for almost an infinite number of great little melodies and chord progressions that you can produce. It's this wonderful thing to play with music. And it's something that like when you hear it, it gives you this amazing feeling that you can't describe. And also it, it feels that way for other people as they hear it. The sound waves travel through the air and the, it draws people in. And music is this amazing thing that sort of like, kind of like ties people together all in these big harmonious waveforms that are floating around. So separately from mathematics, I just love music. It's awesome. It's an amazing thing to do. It's an amazing thing to get your head into and to play and to hear. And given that, it's also cool to experiment with whatever pool of things that can inspire you to do different, make different sounds and create different patterns. So that's my plug for making math music. It's not like we need it. It's not like we need you know, anything beyond some, just some form of music to like, to, to sing and to hum and to like kind of bond over as humans. But like, there's so many great things that you can, that you can draw from to make anything more interesting or just different. And it doesn't have to be different for it to be. In fact, it, most of the time it shouldn't be. But like, also, you can make your art from anything. And you can draw from any idea. So, like, the wonderful thing to me to use mathematical ideas in music is just merely, merely that I know them. I study them. I love them. I have sort of an intuitive sense of these patterns. And so I'm also a musician and a composer. And I, it's interesting to me. And I also have the ability to kind of fuse these patterns with musical patterns. And so it's like, why not do that? It gets a different feeling. It expresses something different, whether it's new or not. You know, it doesn't mean that, like, you're suddenly, like, converting to only making outer space music. Um, that's my plug for people making outer space music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's other, you know, there's other really simple things. Like, um, I composed a score for uh, Andrew Granville, the number theorist. He um, wrote a play with his sister, this really cool play called um, MSI. That's like a detective story that is also a math paper that's kind of encoded in the play. Or basically, it is a math paper with an, an actual math paper with a, with mathematics going on and ideas and a thing that it's trying to say. Um, but it's written in the format of a play and acted out by people. Um, anyway, um, Andrew asked me to write a score for it, and so I wrote a score based on the sequence of prime numbers. In this case, the prime numbers were just, uh, for the most part, were just the time signatures. But, like, different time signatures inspire different sorts of melodies and t- cadences and timings and feelings. And so I tried to string them together in a way that made a pretty song that you wouldn't notice was written kind of with a mathematical inspiration and um except in the middle of the song um i i are you familiar with the sieve of eratosthenes eratosthenes was a um and i think he was a greek uh, i think he was in alexandria and like i think that he, i think that he was the librarian at the library of alexandria actually um but he did a lot of amazing stuff but one thing he did was that he came up with a method for identifying prime numbers a simple method that is very powerful called the sieve of eratosthenes and he um so I took the sieve of Eratosthenes and I scored it out basically on the sheet music paper. I wrote it out in the middle section of the composition for Andrew's play. So at one second of the play, it breaks out of these nice little melodies and sort of baroque sounding music into this sort of like weird, kind of jazzy section. It's, you know, um, it's just jazzy by default because it's, uh, it's kind of far out. Um, and so, um, and then it goes back into the pretty sort of theme of the play. Um, but uh, it, so basically you can pick out the sequence of the prime numbers up to 30 from the patterns of the instrument in the middle of the piece. It's not like that's the 
it doesn't it doesn't need that to be a good song or a good composition. But it's like cool to add that in there, and also that his play was uh, his play is all about prime numbers, so you know it's almost it's actually necessary to do something cool like that. I also composed um, uh, a similar thing, a different Civ of Eratosthenes, where I scored the Civ out on the sheet music, no, the notation, you know, the the, the staves of the uh, sheet music, and um, for the uh, bell tower at the University of Illinois. Um, the bell tower at the University of Illinois is in the building of the mathematics department. So it's like right there, like ringing in the walls of the math department at every hour. And at like 1 o'clock every day, the live bell ringer, they have a live bell ringer, she gives a concert. And you can go up into the bell tower and watch them play. It's so cool. I mean, imagine just you know, hearing a concert of ringing bells every day. So I thought that it would be fun to make a composition where the mathematicians could hear mathematics on the hour. And um, so... Uh, so I wrote this thing for Bell Towers, that's the Civil of Eratosthenes. It worked out quite nicely. And um, I, went and I was visiting the University of Illinois earlier this year, and I gave a copy of it to the bell ringer, just sort of as a tribute. Like this, you know, this, here's a composition you inspired. I had visited the previous year and had just been blown away going up into the bell tower. Max and I went up there. And so Max is my son. He's a, he loves music. And so as we were up in the bell tower, uh, the bell ringer actually played the composition while Max and I were standing up among the, you know, pulling ropes and stuff with the bells ringing above our heads. And uh, I was just so overwhelmed by the bells themselves and, the, and also the mechanics of the whole thing um, that I didn't notice. But Max was like, Daddy, Daddy, he's pulling on my hand. Daddy, they're playing your composition. <laughs> and uh, that was a really cool experience, standing up in the bell tower when they played the Civ of Eratosthenes. Um, I've done other sorts of experimental stuff like that. Like I invented a mind-controlled synthesizer and wrote a score for it that stimulates both sides of your brain to control the synthesizer and sort of like... This isn't my main thing. My main thing is trying to write great songs that are meaningful and that will span generations and different people could listen to them and enjoy them and find lots of good stuff to listen to over a number of listenings. That's my goal in writing a song. In addition to that, I sometimes want to do other stuff. <laughs> I like to hear stuff that's just kind of like different. It makes my brain feel good. Yeah, so like I said, as a mathematician, my interest isn't necessarily in like analyzing music or anything like that, although I am interested in that as a musician and a composer. But as a musician and an artist, I'm very interested in drawing patterns from anywhere I can and using them to sort of make life and make music a little different and a little, you know, and more interesting. Um, not that it needs to be more interesting, just different. <laughs> and so um, it's just interesting to imagine that you're, just to know that you're expressing these different sorts of emotions, different feelings in sound that um, have not been widely explored. It's like finding a place in the forest and you can find a beautiful place in the forest, and it doesn't matter if somebody else was there 10 minutes ago. You're still experiencing it now for yourself. But then if you find a place that's really rare and hard to get to, and you're pretty sure that a lot of people haven't been there, then you feel like you're just standing there with all of those few people kind of like appreciating the rare, rarity of that location. And so um, it's that, that's a cool thing about kind of like playing in different sounds and timbres and with different sorts of patterns and using mathematics, you know, as a case of that. Um, um, yeah, yes. It just makes your mind feel good and kind of like makes your heart feel good. That is all the time that we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. And I really want to thank Robert Schneider for being one of my favorite people in the world to talk to. You can hear the original uh, story that was created based on this interview on the episode The Score. And that live interview with a live musical performance, mind you, you can hear on Origins. I should also tell you that since we recorded this original interview, Robert has got a PhD in mathematics from Emory University and now works at the University of Georgia. So go Robert. All of the music that you heard on this episode was either from Robert directly or from Apples in Stereo. You can find them at applesinstereo.com or you can stream their music on various services. And of course, I want to thank my patrons on Patreon who I couldn't make this episode without. But I also need to thank my original Kickstarter backers without whom Relatively Prime never would have started and I never would have 
called up Robert for this original interview. So thank all of you patrons and Kickstarter backers alike. If you want to kick in and help this show continue, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash railprime. If you give at the bonus feed or above level, you will get a couple of extra compositions uh, by Robert that I wasn't able to include in this episode, which are super fun and funky and, you know, exactly like what hearing Robert talk was like, but in musical form. And, as always, and of course, have a math-horrific month, y'all. <laughs>